Well, good morning, everyone. I think we had a good breakfast this morning and good fellowship. And so it's good to be with you all and uh, good to dive into our subject again this morning. Uh, we do want to leave some time for questions at the end. And, um, and uh, the, last night we asked for questions after the first session. And uh, we had a few, but it was not that many. We just got warmed up in the second session. We could have gone a little bit longer with the questions. So um, what we'll do to, to, uh, this morning, we've got one session, and we'll go through this subject of Israel prophecy and the land promises given towards the nation of Israel. And uh, if you have questions after that, well, you know, we'll take a, a few more of those because this is where the rubber meets the road. And uh, we want to look and think about this. There'll be a lot in this session, a lot in this session. We will be, uh, we'll be passing all these PowerPoints uh, over to Malcolm or Jason, and so we'll have them maybe on your website or, or someone will have them so you can review and go back and look at verses or quotations uh, and that kind of thing. So let's dive into the subject this morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a psalm recounting and emphasizing God's role in the Davidic covenant. The fact that there's a promise or a covenant that there'll be someone who will sit on the throne of David, as David did, ruling and reigning in an everlasting kingdom. And that will be the person of the Lord Jesus. David could not sit on an everlasting throne. Uh, Solomon could not sit on an everlasting throne. Only, only the Lord Jesus, one who is called King David's greater son, he will sit on that throne. And in Psalm 89, beautiful, beautiful psalm uh, with a lot of great things in it. It's a messianic psalm. But notice what it says down in verse 34, speaking about covenants. Speaking about uh, last night, one of the thoughts that came out is the, the whole reason this subject of uh, replacement theology promises that God made unconditional, everlasting promises that God made to Israel. Can they be broken because Israel was unfaithful? And if God can break promises with Israel then can he break promises with us? Now, I have an article here, if you're interested in looking at it at a later date, later today or somewhere. Uh, I've got an article by John MacArthur. Now, John MacArthur is, is strongly Calvinistic in the area of election and salvation, but he is not in the area of replacement theology. And he has a 17-page Internet article. It was a sermon he gave to a lot of people who believe in, re, in, in replacement theology. And uh, it was a very provocative title. Um, and the title is this, Why Every Calvinist Should Be a Premillennialist. Why Every Calvinist Should Be Premillennialist. Now, most Calvinists are not premillennial. There are some. It's a good number, but the majority are not. The majority are... Uh, are replacement theology people, the, the R.C. Sproul's and the John Piper type people of the world. 
But in this article, he said this. He said, Israel, as a person who believes in election, he said, we as reform believers are the ones who believe in election the strongest. Yet when it comes to Israel, we're the first to say that God's broken their election and taken it away from them. And this is one of the promises or one of the, 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 the passages he speaks about. Look what it says. Verse 34, my covenant, God speaking, my covenant, and he's speaking specifically about the Davidic covenant, but I think it refers to all his covenants. My covenant will I not break, nor will I alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Verse 35, once have I sworn in my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. His seed shall dwell before me forever. His seed shall endure forever and his throne before the sun. A number of years ago, I had a friendship with, um, and I still am friends with him, but uh, I'm Facebook, a Facebook friend. But... Um, I don't see him very much at all, but he was a Jewish, not a believer in Jesus Christ, a Jewish, a conservative Jewish man. And he, we would talk together, we'd have lunch together. His name was Leonard Resnick. And uh, he would often say, Israel will not survive. Israel will not, there'll be a day there'll be no more Israel. Israel will not be able to survive the politics and um, Marrying those who are not Jews, the young people, wars, um, the opposition to Israel, they were not survive. And I would read to him and I would quote to him, he believed the Old Testament. Verses like this David's seed shall endure forever. Israel will not cease to exist. Whatever happens in the Middle East, I will go to the grave. <laughs> We can go and stand on Scripture that Israel will not be pushed into the sea. Israel will endure. There may be ups and downs, but Israel will not be utterly annihilated like many of those surrounding her would like her to be. It will not happen. So we want to look this morning at the subject of the land promises and Israel. And what does it say? Does Israel have a claim... Is the land of Israel, land of Canaan, is it the land of Israel's? How should we understand that? Does the church inherit the promises or are these promises for Israel? First of all, I want to think a little bit with you about, about prophecy. Uh, I think it's a great subject. Uh, I think prophecy has fallen on bad times. We don't have many messages on prophecy as we used to have. And, um, and uh, there's a certain amount of prophecy that can be too sensational. But there is another part of prophecy that's very important to us. I said last night that every major event of prophecy shows the Lord Jesus Christ to be in the first place. And that makes prophecy alone very, very important. Why is there so much controversy concerning prophecy? You know, some people say there are so many different ways to interpret Revelation. 
There's so many different schemes of, 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 of Bible prophecy. There's the midterm tribulation rapturous. There's the post-term. There's the post-millennialist. There's the premillennialist. There's the amillennialist. There's the preterist. There's every other kind of view, and it makes people begin to say, I'll never understand anything about prophecy. And I think that's what Satan would love to do. He'd love for us not to study prophecy. And so he muddies the water, we could say. He makes it very difficult to understand it. And we say, I just can't understand. But we read in Revelation, the first part of the first chapter, what? Blessed is he who reads the words of this book. There's a blessing. Satan wants to, wants to confuse us about prophecy and about revelation, about the nation of Israel. And why would he want to do that? Because I think prophecy is very important. Prophecy is the divine stamp upon Scripture. A number of years ago, I have a, 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 a nephew. We were at a wedding. It was my um, a cousin's wedding. And uh, he was raised in a Baptist church. And he was dating an unbeliever. That was the first mistake. But anyway, he said to me, give me one reason. We're walking the hallway to the reception time. Give me one reason I should believe in the Bible. One reason. I said to him, 25% of the Bible is prophecy. No other religious book in the history of the world ever stamped, they say about 27% of the Bible is prophecy. <clears throat> and prophecy is one side of the faithfulness of God. There's a, prophecy is a two-sided coin. One is promises to us that are personal. That's prophecy, but it's personal, so we call it promises. The other side, prophecy, is those things about events, nations, and persons, and things that will come to pass. But a verse like John 14, in my Father's house, or let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house, or many mansions, if it was not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Well, that's a prophetic passage, isn't it? But it's a promise to us personally. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'll come again, that where I am, you may be also. It's a passage about the rapture, but it's also personal. So there's a two-sided coin. One is personal, and that's why prophecy is very important. It grips our hearts. It makes the Lord Jesus near. It makes it personal. We love the Lord Jesus even more because of the personal side. It was all about world events and political rulers and dictators and emperors and rising and fall of empires. It wouldn't be so, it wouldn't be so interesting to us, but it's personal to us. The Lord Jesus is the center of all biblical history through prophecy. The Lord Jesus coming again, he is the one. With the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And the Lord shall descend. The Lord shall meet us in the clouds. The Lord Jesus is the center of every event of biblical prophecy. Psalm 119.49. Remember the word unto your servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. Hope is assurance. The word hope never means, um, never means something desired or wished for that might come to pass. We in the Tampa Bay area may say we had the number one draft pick in the draft two nights ago. We drafted 
Uh, we drafted um, Jameis Winston, and we hope to have a great season. And we actually wish. We don't have any certainty that's going to happen. We wish that's going to happen. Hope is certain. And I have this quotation, remember the word unto your servant, a promise unto your servant, a prophecy unto your servant, David, which thou hast caused me to have certainty, trust, help, an anchor. And so prophecy is this way. My covenant I will not break, nor will I alter the thing gone out of my lips. Five things, uh, th- three things that prophecy does. It speaks of the character of God. It's a display of the sovereignty of God, that God is in control in this world. That's what prophecy shows us. He is in control. Nothing happens out of his sovereign control, and he is arranging the world events that slowly are culminating in the return of the Lord Jesus. It's a display of the love of God. I just quoted John 14, 1 through 3. Well, that's a picture. Prophecy is actually a picture of God's love to us in this world, especially to believers. The rapture. Being with the Lord Jesus forever. The end of, uh, of First Corinthians, uh, First Thessalonians chapter 4. So shall we ever be with the Lord. What is the best definition of heaven in the Bible? Used five or six times. So shall we ever be with the Lord. It's mentioned that way in John 14. It's mentioned that way in, um, in First Thessalonians 4. It's mentioned that way in John 17. We shall be with the Lord. Displays God's love and his faithfulness. So prophecy is very important. Uh, John uh, Charles Ryrie has this beautiful quotation about why prophecy is important. It's in his book, Basic Theology. For the believer, the knowledge of prophecy provides joy in the midst of affliction, cleanses and encourages holy living, gives proof of the reliability of the Holy Scripture, gives facts about life after death, provides truth about the end of history. Prophecy draws our hearts out in worship to the God who is in complete control and who will accomplish his will in history. To slight prophecy is to miss these benefits. Absolutely, we would say amen to that. That's a real reason and purpose in the study of prophecy. Well, we want to think this morning especially about the land of Israel and, uh, and land promises to Israel. 75% of the Bible speaks of Israel. Israel is mentioned over 2,000, nearly 2,000 times, second only to the word God in Scripture. We have to assume, we have to uh, believe that what God is saying about the nation of Israel, land of Israel, promises to Israel, has to be important. Israel has to be a crucial, uh, a crucial figure, person, group in biblical history. Jerusalem is mentioned over 800 times. I've heard, I'm not a scholar, I've heard this never mentioned or very few times ever mentioned in the Koran, but 800 times in the Bible. Israel is mentioned as my land 144 times. The land of Israel is called my land, the glory of all lands, the land that I care for, the beautiful land. And we'll look at all of these references as we go on this morning. We have to stop and say, 
the land of Israel and the promises of the land to Israel has to be something of crucial importance because it's mentioned so often in the Bible. Theodore Herzl. We want to think a little bit about how Israel got to the modern land, the land of, uh, of Canaan that we think of today. Theodore Herzl was an Austrian journalist, and he began to desire a homeland for the Jews. There was a number of political events that took place where the Jews were persecuted. And so he said, we need a homeland, we need a nation. And he said, he would go around to the world and say this phrase, there's a people without a land, and there's a land without a people. Give the land without a people to the people without a land. I don't know if you followed all that, but what he was saying is give Israel to the Jewish people. There was no one living. It was a barren, nomadic, Bedouin uh, area, Israel. There's pictures of Mark Twain in 1850 going and visiting. He wrote a book on Israel. And pictures of Israel at that time, it was a barren, uninhabited land. Jerusalem, uninhabited practically. And he said, give the nation of Israel he died in 1904, never saw any of those promises fulfilled. But he would go throughout, he was a, he was a journalist, he was an unbeliever, didn't even believe in God, didn't, he was an atheist. But he believed in the people of Israel, and he believed that they should have a homeland and be, and, and be protected. He began to have Zionist congresses, and he wanted a land, and that land of Israel, it didn't seem like they would ever get it. And so began to intercede, and the nation of Uganda, of all things, promised Israel 6,000 square miles of land in the middle and the heart of Africa as a homeland for the Jews. And they debated this in a world congress. But there was a man, this man, W.E. Blackstone. He was an evangelical Christian. He spoke on three occasions at the Jewish World Congresses uh, convened by, by Herzl, of all things. He was one of the great friends of the Jews. Today, outside of Jerusalem, there's a 75-acre forest called, called Blackstone Forest, dedicated to this man. What did he do? He got a Jewish Bible, a Jewish Old Testament, and he highlighted every passage which spoke about Israel would be the land of the Jewish people. He took it and he mailed it to Theodore Herzl. Today, it's in on the top of uh, Mount Scopus. There's a museum, uh, which is right near this forest. And that Bible is prominently on display, highlighted. And because of that, it turned their thinking Turned their thinking from Uganda. Can you imagine if they were in the heart of Africa when Idi Amin, who is a, the greatest Jew hater in the world, would have come to reign later on in the midst, in the middle of Uganda, there is the Jewish homeland. God wanted them to be in this land. <clears throat> 1918, land of England, British Empire, the prime minister, Signed the Balfour Declaration, 1918. Her Majesty's government will do everything in her power to give a homeland to the Jewish people. They wrote this letter. They sent it to uh, Chaim um, Weissman, who was then the 
was a leader in the Jewish people and give a promised homeland to the Jews. Right after that, six months, I believe, after that, there is a, a war, there was a battle uh, between England and other nations, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, with the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire. After that was signed in 1918, about six months later, General Edmund Allenby, British general, he walked in and he took control of Jerusalem. And from that point on, the Jews, the, 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 the British, had uh, control uh, of Palestine. And they allowed Jews to come back, more and more Jews to come back. 1918, when Edmund Allenby went in, he had so much respect for God and the Jewish people, he refused to march through the Jaffa Gate on horseback, which everyone previously did. He got off his horse, had all of his men go into Jerusalem, walking through the Jaffa Gate with their heads covered. And um, he was a great hero to the Jewish people through his his military power, uh, slowly the Jewish people began to return to Israel. Then in May 14, 1948, they received through the UN, they received their UN charter, charter as a nation. One day later, they were attacked by a good number of Arab nations round about them, and seven times they were attacked. And every time they were got stronger and they were able to, uh, to be victorious. Someone asked, uh, I think this is some time ago, they asked one of the prime ministers, what would happen if you'd be attacked again? He said, we would celebrate because we would win again. Now, I don't know if that's overconfidence, but they won seven times against great overwhelming forces, tremendous overwhelming forces of the nations around them. The Six-Day War, June 5th through June uh, 10th, 1967, they gained control of all of Jerusalem, the east and west sides of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, uh, they pushed back all the way almost to Damascus, the Golan Heights. They took all of the Gaza Strip. They took all of the Sinai Peninsula. I don't have a map of that. I wish I did. Uh, it was tremendous what happened. Amazing what happened against overwhelming forces. I like sometimes to watch, and I have it at home, um, video clips of all these time periods um, just as the way God wonderfully it only can be through God's power and working uh, that they received and they were able to remain in the land. Very few people at that time, very few military weaponry, and yet victorious over much better uh, equipped nations around about them. What is the biblical basis? Biblical basis for the land of Israel uh, belonging or that the, Israel, the people of Israel having the... Um, the privilege to live in that land. What is the basis for that? Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Does Israel have the right, or we want to say even the privilege? Um, when we look at these passages we're going to look at, one of the things we're going to see it's just probably wrong to say Israel has a right or a claim or a demand upon living in the nation, in the land, the land area we would call Canaan. They don't have that right. They don't possess that land. The land is God's land, and we'll see that over and over again. And Israel are tenants allowed to live in the land 
when they're faithful and we don't fall into idolatry. But that land only has one tenant. There's no other tenants to that land. When that one tenant is not doing what God wants them to do, God has instructed, told them, that he will make them leave that land. But he's brought them back. Three times they've been dispersed, deported, and three times they've come back. And um, there's one tenant. God is the owner of the land. I'm not sure how many times in the Bible it says this, but it says many, many times, that land is my, God speaking, it is my land, my land. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, wonderful, amazing scripture. This is, in time setting, this is right at the time of Genesis chapter 11, where we have the distribution or the the speaking about the distribution of the various peoples in different parts of the world. How the Edomites and the Moabites would go into different parts of the world. He says this, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance. That is Genesis 11. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people, all the other nations, set their bounds according to the number of the children of Israel. Isn't that an amazing passage? That all the other nations of the world... They were set in the places where they were living. On what basis? On the basis of the children of Israel, which did not yet exist. Not until a chapter later when Abraham is called. It existed in God's mind and God's plan sovereignly. He knew exactly what he was, what he was doing. But as a fact on history, chronological world history, Israel, a Hebrew, was an unknown thing. Someone was asked... At this point, where are the Jewish people going to live? There were no Jewish people. But he said he sent the bounds of every other nation according to the number of the Jewish people. Now, isn't that significant? God in his mind had a special calling, a special desire, a special purpose for the Jewish people. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, he said, I did not call you. I did not choose you. Because you're the greatest nations. I didn't set my love upon you because you are the greatest of all nations, but because you are the smallest of all nations. I think sometimes when we read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28, where it says, God has shown the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's chosen the weak things to confound the mighty. He's chosen the despised and the lowly things of this world now, we know that passage is really speaking about the believer and, uh, and how he's chosen us and those who serve him. But, you know, it, it's a beautiful parallel to Israel. He's chosen the foolish things, the weak things, to confound the mighty. He's chosen the despised things. He's chosen the lowly things. That's what Israel's: The lowly, the despised, the weak, and the foolish. Matthew Henry makes a comment on this. Now, uh, not all Reformed people uh, believe the church uh, replaces Israel, and he's one of them. And uh, the, older, the older Reformed Calvinistic preachers, like Charles Spurgeon and Matthew Henry, they didn't believe any of that. They believe Israel has a place in the land. They understand as clearly as any one of us 
they would interpret these passages like, like Charles Ryrie would interpret these passages. Not like the modern uh, replacement person would do that. When the earth was divided among the sons of men after the days of the flood, God had Israel in his thoughts and in his eye, designing this good land into which they were in due time to inherit. The Canaanites thought they had short title to the land, but God intended that they should be only tenants. See, I understood that same idea. They are tenants of the land till Israel, their landlords, came. Israel are tenants. It is God's land and is the land, God's own land. Let's turn to a couple of passages. Let's go to Genesis. We'll look at some passages that speak about the biblical basis for Israel to be in that land. The right to live there, right to dwell there, right to protect, a right to defend their borders. Very early after the call of Abraham, call of Abraham's chapter 12, chapter 13, God comes and gives promises in a very early time about the land. And they wouldn't enter, to the, enter the land until Joshua chapter 1. They'd wander for 38 years or 40 years. For all, he says in chapter 13, verse 15, for all the land that thou seest to thee will I give it forever. Chapter 13, verse 15. To thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. I don't have that, uh, that word to thy seed, but that's important. Two important phrases in this verse. To all the land that thou seest, to thee will I give it and to your seed, to your offspring. And we'll see that repeated over and over again. And I give it to you forever. An everlasting possession and a possession that is ethnic or national. Not just for Abraham. It's just not for, for Joshua. It's for their descendants and their descendants after them. And to the Jewish people, to their offspring, that God gives this land. Chapter 17. Though I have it on the screen, I want us to turn to it, look at it. Hopefully you can underline it in your Bibles, take your highlighters, and highlight some of these passages. Chapter 17, verse 7 and 8. I will establish my covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, between me and thee and thy seed, again, thy offspring, after thee, in their generations, generation after generation, this land, my land, is for you to live in, is for your boundaries, is for your generation, is for your children. It is for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and thy seed after thee, and I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art sojourner, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Well, we see this two phrases over and over again. Thy seed, thy offspring, the generations after thee, and then the phrase everlasting, forever. We were asked last night, what about Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16 where it says that, uh, that those who believe in the Lord Jesus enter into the promises. I believe the spiritual promises of salvation that Abraham also entered into. But one reason we would say that it doesn't mean the material promises and the national promises of land and the borders of the land of Canaan is because the land is for their seed, their seed only, and is for an everlasting covenant. And that we see repeated over and over. We can't miss it. 
I'm not sure how many times in these passages that that is said, but it's an everlasting covenant, and it is for their offspring. Turn to uh, chapter 15 and verse 18. Here we have the boundaries of the land mentioned. Mentioned in chapter 15. In verse 18, the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river Egypt unto the great river Euphrates. So there is a boundary, but turn over to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. We're given more boundaries in Joshua chapter 1. The north, the south, the east, and the west. Joshua chapter 1, he says in verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give them. Uh, This is an unconditional promise by God. He will give them this land. It is his land, but he gives it to them. They are the only tenant that has possession of this land. He says, even to the children of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses, from the wilderness of this Lebanon to the north, to the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, down to the great sea, towards the going down of the sun, shall be your border. There shall be no, there shall not be any man able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so shall I be with thee. Verse 6, be strong and of good courage, for all this people shall you divide for an inheritance the land which I swore unto their fathers to give to them. What you see in this passage and in preceding passages that God is giving this because he made a promise. I promised your fathers. I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I made a covenant promise. He's not revoking that promise. He's not, uh, he's not even desiring to revoke it, but he's saying, I made a promise. I made a promise to your fathers, and I'll be good on that promise. I'll be faithful to that promise. That's the land. It's the borders we are reading about in these passages. What a land. From the Lebanon to the north, to the great river Euphrates, to the Nile, uh, to the the west. Look at that land. Now, I don't have a pointer on this, but you see where Israel is. That little postage stamp, that little tiny little speck of land there in the Middle East that the nations around them are fighting over with great ferocity. I look at Saudi Arabia, I look at Egypt, I look at Iraq, I look at Iran, I look at Turkey, I look at Syria. Look how big those nations, even Jordan, probably three times as large as Israel is. And, of course, Israel, you don't, the West Bank, which is in the middle part, that would be around the area of Samaria. Uh, The Palestinians have control of that area in the Gaza Strip. So you subtract that from the land, and you have very, the Golan Heights is internationally controlled. You take that away from the land, and you've got very little land. You can't live on the borders because that's within the distance of bombings. 
and missile attacks. So the land they live in is a very small part of that very small land. But God has said, my promise is a bigger land. And one day they will inherit that land. As sure as we believe this word, this Bible, they will inherit a much greater land. Now, we'll look at Joel. Turn with me to Joel chapter 3 for a minute, Old Testament. It is amazing when we go through all of the Bible, minor prophets, uh, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Joshua is all speaking about the land of Israel and what God's instructions are about the land of Israel. Book of Joel, very important what is said. This is a Chapter 3 is a very important portion. Chapter 3, verse 2. Begin with verse 1. Behold, in those days and in that time, I will bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Bring them back to the land. I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and will judge them there. But notice the next couple of statements. It says, For my people and my heritage Israel, whom they've scattered among the nations, and they have parted my land. They've divided my land. There's a judgment. This is the valley of Jehoshaphat. This is a place where judgment will take place. And he says, I'm going to gather the nations. I'm going to judge the nations because of what they did to Israel. I'm going to judge them because they dealt with my people and my heritage in such a way that they've scattered them among the nations and that they have divided my land. Now, today there are about 14 million Jewish people. There were, uh, when I was in high school and college, there were 18 million Jewish people. Um, but there are 14 million. Seven million live in the land of Israel, in that little speck of land. About three or four million live in this country. The largest amount live in the great city of Brooklyn, New York. Um, I think a million live in Brooklyn, New York. And then the rest are scattered throughout the world. Paris, a great number live in Paris. In London, the great cities. Of course, six million or so were killed in the Holocaust and other times. But 14 million exist today. But look what it says today. They have, so I will judge in the latter day. I will judge them because they have parted my land. Now keep your finger there. We'll just look at this. Leviticus chapter 25, 23. This is one of the, the Pentateuch books. Way back it says in 25, 23, the land shall not be sold forever for the land is my land. Remember back in the days of, of, of Elijah and Naboth's vineyard and Ahab and his wife Jezebel. What did she want? She wanted his garden. It was a beautiful garden. She could look out her window and see the and Naboth's vineyard and garden. And she wanted it and she wanted to buy it. And they refused to sell it. 
One of the reasons probably, we're not sure, probably because the land could not be sold. It was given as inheritance to the various tribes. They could not sell their land. The land shall not be sold forever. The land is my land. And we want to look at a number of passages now that speak about this. We can't divide the land. It is God's land. But what has happened over the years? Now, this is a, a picture of what Israel was like in 1967. This is the Sinai Peninsula, right bordering Egypt. Egypt is right here. Okay. Got this pointer. Egypt is right here. Here's Egypt right there. Sinai Peninsula. Right here is the Gaza Strip. Right here is that whole section there. It's the West Bank. This is the Golan Heights. This is Damascus. This is internationally controlled. This is the whole section there. That's all of Israel today. They won that militarily. In about seven days, they gave it all back. 1993, Israel controlled land, gave back the Sinai Peninsula. This now is over there in 2001, internationally controlled Golan Heights. Right in front of that is where Hezbollah shoots rockets to the northern part of Israel. That is Lebanon, but it's Hezbollah controlled over here, and this is the West Bank, this is the Gaza Strip. This was their land. Then that, then this, all done through pressure from the UN, for the most part, and nations around them. They have done all of that for peace, and I think it was last year, 2004, 8,000 rockets were shot in Israel from the Gaza Strip and from Hezbollah and other places. Luckily, they're not as well guided, and they don't always hit their targets, Um, but they are still shot many, many times. Land for peace. They have given away land after land. Can you imagine 7 million people living in that, this third area? And in this area, many of the border areas you can't live in. You can't live, the northern part is very hard to live in that area. That's where missiles are shot. So that's why partly they build settlements in the West Bank because they can't hardly live anywhere else. This middle part is the safest part of Israel. But it's the Lord's land. He said, my land should not, should not be divided. It should not be sold. I brought you, Nehemiah 2.7, I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof, the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land. It's the Lord's land. They are tenants in that land. And when they do not live the way they should live, God removes them. Jeremiah 16:18. I'll rec- I will recompense their iniquity and their, their sin double because they've defiled my land. A land of hills and valleys, a land which the Lord cares for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Isn't that a fantastic statement? We cannot say the land of Israel, the promises God made to Israel, uh, and, and the care that he has for that. And I think of what replacement theologians would say about how the church inherits the land. We see these promises as his land. He's granted them to live in this land. This land is important to the Lord. It's a land of hill and valleys, a land which the Lord cares for. The eyes of the Lord are always on this land. 
for every year, for every generation, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. In that day, I lifted up my hand. I brought them out of Egypt, a land that I had chosen for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. I've been to Israel. It's a beautiful land. I'm not sure if it's more beautiful than Colorado or Florida or other places, but God says it's the glory of all lands. It's a special land. It's his land. It's my land. It's a land that he gives. He's chosen to give to this nation. I took you out of Egypt. I chose a land for you, and this is the land that I gave you, and it is the glory of all lands. What is the future of Israel? Is this modern-day regathering that we see today, seven million Jews and the, the, the land boundaries that we see, what is the future for Israel? Is their regathering the land permanent? Is there going to be another dispersion out of the land? And what does the Scripture say? So let's think about this a little bit. The dispersions that they've had. Now, Reformed and Replacement people will say uh, they're, un, they're disobedient, so God is going to remove them uh, from the land. They don't have any right to the land. They're unfaithful, unbelieving, and, uh, and so God will take them out of the land, and the church should have that land in a certain sense. Israel entered the land under Joshua. Dispersions took place under the Syrian and the Babylonian captivities. Uh, I think one was uh, 538, and the other one was 605. Uh, returning to the land under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, um, that was, I think, Ezra returned six years before Nehemiah did, and uh, Zerubbabel about 60 years before that. The return, dispersion in 70 A.D. under Roman Emperor Titus, and they come back into the nation uh, in May 14, 1948. Now, what will happen? Let's look at a couple of passages. There's two end-time regatherings. Uh, one we looked at last night a little bit, um, but let's look at some of these. 700 B.C., the very end, uh, near the end of the Old Testament, Zephaniah 2, verse 1. Gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation not desired. That's not desired by nations round about her. Before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, the tribulation period. Gather yourselves together, O nation not desired, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. So I want to suggest that this is a regathering planned and sovereignly uh, arranged and planned and spoken of by God prior to the tribulation period. And we're in that time now. He says, gather yourselves together before the tribulation period. I believe that's what was happening in Ezekiel chapter 37. Uh, those valley of dead bones. They weren't believing. They weren't faithful. They were raised up. Later on, they're breathed into, at a latter period, they're breathed into the breath of God and they come alive. And there's a spiritual regeneration in that land. But they're regathered and they come together and they're alive before the tribulation period. I believe there will be a scattering to a certain degree during the tribulation period. But there's a gathering that God has desired and planned in his sovereign will before the tribulation period, and we see that today. Seven million Jews are in uh, Israel today. 
The Israeli army is a half a million uh, young people, people who are in the Israeli army. Um, if you want to watch a very interesting movie, I recommend it to you. It is spellbinding and I think it's phenomenal. It's called The Green Prince. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of the movie The Green Prince. Go on Amazon, order it for a few dollars. I, I'm not sure who, who produces it, but a book about this man's life is, print, is uh, published by Tyndale Press. And his name is, um, is Hassan Musab uh, Youssef. And he, is, uh, he was a son of the founder of Hamas. And he uh, was a spy for the Israeli army, for the, would be the Israeli FBI, against the Palestinians. But someone witnessed to him in 1990. He was a spy until 2007. Someone witnessed to him a British missionary in Israel, not knowing who he was, a son of a Hamas leader, probably third or fourth in, in, in command, a founder of Hamas. Uh, he, um, he witnesses to him. After 10 years of being a spy for Israel, though being a son of a Hamas leader in Palestine, he had gotten too hot, too difficult. He goes to the United States. He's told to leave Palestine. When he does that, one of the first things he does, he goes into a little church in San Diego, uh, the Barabbas Road Baptist Church, handful of people, and he gets saved. He becomes a Christian. Tells his father, become a Christian. And I was a spy for the Israeli FBI for 10 years. He says, come back. You are my son. We are brothers. He says, no way. I'm not going to come back. They put a half a million dollar bounty on his head. He eventually becomes a U.S. citizen and uh, he is on a lot of talk shows. It's just a phenomenal story uh, about the power of the Israeli FBI, uh, FBI Bet Shen, it's called. Now, what's interesting about the army, I'm just talking about a little bit about the power of Israel today. What's interesting about the army is they knew he was a founder. Uh, he was a son of the founder of, of Hamas. They watched him. They had spies watching him 24 hours a day since he was 12 years old. You wonder how they can protect their country. Well, they do it because they do those kinds of things. And one day he went to buy a gun when he was 17 years old. And he went through 12 checkpoints, and he came back. No one caught them. The next day, knocked on the door, and they arrested him. They knew exactly what he was doing <laughs> every moment of the day. But they say, gather together, and they have gathered themselves together. But there's a gathering in belief, another gathering. I will bring them in out of Egypt. I will gather them out of Assyria. I will bring them, out of, I'll bring them into Gilead and Lebanon I will bring them. They shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people. I shall be their God in truth and righteousness. Now, this is a very, very crucial passage in the Old Testament concerning replacement theology. I'll tell you why. Notice this in Zechariah, very late in the Old Testament. The replacement theologians will say all the regatherings about God's work with Israel, those are regatherings spoken about the regatherings under Nehemiah, Ezra, and uh, uh, Zerubbabel. No future regatherings for Israel. God doesn't have any more plan for them. There's no end-time regatherings for Israel. The church has replaced Israel. But this is so late in Zechariah, the regatherings already had taken place. 
So any regathering that is spoken of is future regatherings. So here it says, I'll bring them again out of Egypt. I'll gather them out of Syria. I'll bring them into Gilead, the northern part of Israel, and Lebanon. I'll bring them. They shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They will be my people. I shall be their God in truth and righteousness. This is crucial because this is future. This is not speaking about the ones that already took place. This is something that will be future. I will bring them. They will dwell in Jerusalem. A future regathering after the, at the end of the tribulation period into the land. You'll gather them again. There are two regatherings. One that is worldwide, but smaller in scope. One is a final regathering, larger in scope and permanent. They'll return to part of the land. They'll return to all of the land. They'll return in unbelief. They'll return in faith. They'll return restored to the land only. They'll restore to the land and to the Lord. Sets the stage for discipline of the tribulation period. Sets the stage for blessing in the millennium. Now, let's look at this passage. Very interesting passage in Isaiah 11, 11 and 12. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again a second time. Isn't it interesting? A second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush, it's Africa, and Elam and Shinar, which is Egypt, and from Hamath uh, and from the islands of the sea and shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather them together, the dispersed of Judah, from the four corners of the earth. Now, that's not said before. They'll gather them here. They will gather from all over the world a second time. The second end time regathering is a worldwide regathering. Return to the land. And we'll close with this and take some questions. Right after their independence... 1948, 1949-50, Operation Magic Carpet took place. 49,000 Jews in a secret operation uh, came and immigrated to Israel. Second wave, Western European and German. Third wave, a million Jews came from Russia in the 80s and the 90s. Fourth wave came from, Isra- from uh, Ethiopia. Um, percentage of Jews in Israel worldwide down through the various years 1882, zero Jews in Israel. 1900, 1%. 1925, 1%. 1939, 3%. 1948, 6%. Of the percentage of Jews worldwide are in Israel. 55, 13, 20%, 25, 30, 37. Today about 43, maybe 47% of the worldwide Jews are in Israel. Begin to see a regathering. What was prophesied? The first regathering in, in unbelief regathered back to the land. The majority of those in Israel today are not believers. The majority, if you looked up on Wikipedia and said, what is a world religion? What is the, this, the state religion of Israel? It would be atheism or agnosticism. A percentage of them are believing, uh, are, are Jewish believing. A very small percentage are Bible-believing Jews, although there are about 250,000 Bible-believing Christians and Jews in Israel today. God will not cast away his people. The regathering in the land of 1948 is a fulfillment of a promise. God's movement concerning Israel is a barometer of his hand 
and end times prophecy. Well, I'm going to stop there. Um, maybe have some pro- uh, questions, thoughts. You probably got a lot of information in that, and that uh, went kind of fast at certain points too. But um, any questions? Any thoughts? Yes. That's what I would say. Um, some would go so far, I, I don't know if we would say this, and, you know, we just don't know exactly, but I would say it would be that the older dispensations would say the Jews would dwell uh, on the new earth, and, um, and the Christians would dwell in heaven primarily, and uh, that's the place for the Christians in heaven, and they'll dwell upon the earth in the new, the new earth. Now, <coughs> there may be some truth to that. I think the everlasting part does come from that, and I think there'll be a lot of Jews that will live on the earth. And there may be some Christians and some believers who will also do that. I, I don't know how it will work 100%. Because when you look at heaven, look at the gates of heaven and the foundations of heaven, we find a couple of things. We find on the foundations uh, of heaven are the names of the 12 uh, tribes. Now, why would that be? Why would the, the 12 tribes be on the foundations of heaven, of, the, of, 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 uh, of New Jerusalem and heaven? Why would that be? On the foundation, all the 12 names of, of the tribes of Israel. This, the, so you have that. And then you have on the doors, you have all the names of the 12 apostles. So you, you have Christians definitely there, but you do have some indication, at least some, that some Jews would be there. So I don't think we can say universally that that's the case, that only Christians are in heaven and all the Jews are on earth um, and so forth. So, um, but I think that is true. The everlasting reign and rule and having that land is, in the new, is on the new earth. That would be the way to understand that. For the sake of the recording, could you repeat the question? Into the oh, okay. Yes. The question is where does the everlasting kingdom of the Jewish, of Jewish people given by the Lord in these uh, promises in Genesis and Joshua, where is it fulfilled? Is it, is it fulfilled in the new, uh, the new heavens? The, the earth will be burnt up and, and uh, pass away, but a new earth will be formed. Will the kingdom, will their kingdom be in that, that everlasting kingdom be in the new earth? And I, I think it, it will be. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I kept thinking about that as you were showing the, the word seed showing up in so many places. They misinterpret it to, to be the church of Jesus, then that gives them license for the whole scenario. Well, they, I, I think um, the way they look at it is, and we'll see this tomorrow morning, is Israel's disobedient. Israel crucified the Lord Jesus. Had a part of it. Now the leaders did, but not all the whole nation. Many were, were believers. And we find uh, just, uh, what, 40 days later, 50 days later in Pentecost, a huge 
gathering of Jewish people. Many, many Jews get saved. The, the foundation of the church is Jewish people. And the Lord goes to the Jewish people. If they had, <clears throat> if they had been so disobedient, why would you have uh, in Romans chapter 1, where we say that the, the, the gospel is to the Jew first, in Romans chapter 1, 60 years later, after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Why would you have that? If he has forsaken and broken his covenant with Jews, no, he wants them to be saved. And um, he still, they are still his people. And I think scripture would bear that out. And I think the idea that they are disobedient, therefore they break their covenant, but the covenant is an unconditional covenant. I will give you the land. Even though they're disobedient, God will change their hearts. And we are disobedient many times. Uh, I said to someone last night, the reform, uh, the replacement people have some kind of idea that the church is such a wonderful thing. Never disobedient, never breaking promises, never doing anything wrong, always being obedient, always being faithful. Well, that's not true, is it? Are we much better than Israel? Now, we don't offer up human sacrifices and, and those kinds of things at a certain point in their history but we are very unfaithful. Many do not believe in the word of God or practice the word of God. And there's so many things we could point to. Now, if, if God could break his covenant with them, he can certainly break his covenant with us for the sins that we have committed. But God is faithful. He says, I will not break my covenant. I will not alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. He will bring to pass his sovereign purposes. And um, anyway, any uh, other uh, questions? Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's predicated upon key events in the nation of Israel. Israel. You say, wait a second, what about the cross? But what does it say? It says the cutting off of the Messiah. Messiah. Mm-hmm. You see? And then the last portion is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you say, well, that's a judgment. What's well, a judgment of Israel? So the whole of the history is predicated upon key events. Yeah, they're trying to just push it aside and say it's not important. And um, last night, Aaron and I were talking. Okay, you do have some key events uh, in 70 A.D. and 132 A.D. where the Jewish people revolt against Rome, and Rome came with all her force and strength and uh, defeated them, utterly defeated them. Great event. They look back and say, look, you could argue that God has, has set Israel aside. Look, look at this judgment he's allowed. Well, you go forward. In 1948, and you see a nation that is born, and you see seven wars in the next 20 years, and every one of those wars they win against heavy odds, against more uh, heavily armed enemies, nations surrounding them. Egypt, Saudi Arabia, every Arab nation joined together with Russian military, at that time the finest Russian military weaponry, and they are victorious. They destroyed, they pushed all the way to Damascus, almost all the way to Egypt. They could have taken all of Syria. They could have taken all of Jordan. They could have been one of the world powers of that region. How could they do that without God's supernatural sovereign power? So we look at events, and they should, as, as um, Aaron and I were talking, the world should see, the replacement folks should see, 
God is working with Israel. This is an event as great or greater than those events in the first century, but they kind of cast it aside. Uh, it was all political. It was just a politically arranged event. Well, you can't win wars by politics. It's real bullets and real uh, tanks and real, real missiles. Uh, no, it wasn't just politics. It was God's hand in the nation. He has not forsaken his nation. He has not cast him aside. So that is a great event that should be looked at and should be responded to. And most of the world, most of the world looks at it and says, God is doing something in Israel. If you're a believer or not a believer, you're a walker, just walk on the street and say, is God doing something in Israel? How could they win these battles? I think they would say yes. It's impossible for them. That, that land and, the, and 7 million people to defeat millions upon millions of people around about them. Israel, um, Egypt has 75 million people. Israel has 7 million people. And that's just one nation. Uh, another question? Yes. Well, well, your question will be even after Sunday night, you'll probably even have stronger feelings about your question. But because we'll look at anti-Semitism and we see a lot of Christians down through history, even today, have strong anti-Semitic feelings towards Israel. And some even would go so far to say that God... Uh, they're enemies of God. Israel are enemies of God. So, but I was asked last night, is Martin Luther a Christian? Because I had a quotation by Martin Luther. Is he a Christian? Is he going to be in heaven? Um, I think he's going to be in heaven. I think he's saved by the blood of the Lamb. He's a great reformer. Uh, but he, Martin Luther lived in a day, and those in the thousand years before him that had a great hatred for the Jews. The Roman Catholic Church had canonized the fact that the Jews were not the people of God. They were Christ killers, and there was a great animosity towards the Jews. He was raised in that. Can you imagine being raised in a community, and sometimes even uh, 100 years ago or even less. Uh, I know in my father's generation growing up in certain parts of the Northeast, Jews were very disliked, very much disliked. And there was a lot of animosity towards Jewish people in certain communities uh, so there's a, and so when you're raised in that, and that's what he was raised in, I think part of that colored his thinking. If he lived today, I think he might think differently, uh, with a different. We we are blessed beyond imagination. All the resources we have, the teachings we've had, uh, I think the dispensational movement uh, and the teaching, the richness that we've had through Bible teaching and Bible exposition, uh, we live on the greatest periods in church history, in biblical history. Would not want to, if you were to choose a time, you would not choose any other time than this time. Or maybe when the Lord comes, but certainly this is a good time. But he lived in a time where there was a lot of hatred towards Jews. And uh, not just him, but many others. So I'd say he was a believer, but his thinking was greatly marred and hindered and colored by the, the day he lived. Uh, I believe he was a true believer. He understood 
the Lord died for him, and he trusted by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus. Now, people today, are they false teachers? Well, I don't want to go that far and say that kind of thing. Um, I think they're not teaching the right thing, and I think we should defend the scriptures. Um, I would not invite anyone who is a replacement theologian to speak about Israel and their local church. Um, but I think they probably could speak on some other subjects and, and do it well. But I think you'd, you know, you'd be very careful. Uh, John Piper and uh, R.C. Sproul and some of these men are replacement theologians. But you can read some good things and learn some good things from them. But I think it's good that we who love Israel and love God's purposes, that we should stand and defend the truth as much as we can, as often as we can, and, and, uh, and give a good understanding to what the Bible says about Israel. And, um, and we should oppose uh, anti-Semitism that we see in different forms. Uh, and we should never say, you can have different views about Israel. You can talk about replacement theology and different ways of, of understanding it. But I think we cannot say that God hates Israel. God doesn't hate anyone. He loves the world. For God so loved the world. He loves every people, no matter where you are, Russians or Scottish or wherever you come from. He loves all people. He wants all to be saved and, uh, and so forth. So, but I think we have to be careful. I don't want to develop an, an attitude that they're false teachers, they're enemies of God, the replacement theologian type people, and uh, that we should uh, not have any fellowship with them at all. Um, I, I think we need to be careful. And th- there's more... There, I would say they're probably, of all people who attend church, not believers, but the Roman Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, many of the mainline churches, many of the Anglican churches, Episcopalian churches, um, Methodist churches. Um, If you're not a Bible-believing dispensational church, you're probably not going to support Israel. And the pressure to oppose Israel is very great. Uh, The influence of Islam in the college campuses, you, you can hardly have. Just recently, a friend of mine who was a teacher for, um, who was a uh, worker for uh, Friends of Israel, Bruce Scott, from the Minneapolis area, he was spoke at University of Minnesota at St. Cloud uh, on Israel, on a college campus, and there were Muslims shouting him down. There were other groups there. There was opposition you never would believe just because you wanted to speak, not against Islam, but you're speaking about support of Israel. That's all you were doing, support of Israel. Um, there are places if you want to sell an Israeli product, I forget the name of this, but there's an Israeli product for women. It's sort of a face mask type thing made from the minerals of the mud on the, 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 uh, the floor of the, of the Dead Sea. Apparently it's filled with wonderful minerals. And this product is sold in the finest stores. Well, they're boycotted because it's an Israeli product sold in different different stores. Uh, you can't hardly even say the word Israel before you are ostracized in some way or, or another, whether it be politically, economically, uh, and so forth. So Israel today is despised and is hated and is opposed and is attacked, but they survive. What other nation in the world that small, that weak in a way, could ever survive? I think we should support Israel. It says we should pray for them. Uh, someone who opposes them, turn to chapter 20, uh, Psalm 21. It says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We should, pay for, we should pray for them. We should support them. We should care for them. And um, they're not believers, but they are God's people. And they will be believers one day. We will be in heaven with them for eternity one day. Uh, and so, my friends, 
uh, on the replacement side, they should get used to that. Uh, it might be a real shock to them when they get to heaven to find out there are going to be a lot of Jews there. Uh, but that's going to happen. Yes? Okay. I know you covered this, and I may have missed it, but do you believe there is a possibility of another dispersion? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was saying a little bit there, that during the tribulation period there will be a dispersion, and then there will be a regathering but after that. Do you that. believe there's a possibility? Oh, before the tribulation? Before, before the tribulation period. Um, possible, you know. I, I don't. Uh, I, I think that before certain events take place, there's always overlap. Before the tribulation period begins, before the Antichrist comes to the scene, there's always events that are put in place in the age of grace now that that make it possible for what's going to happen in the tribulation period. So um, I don't doubt that some of that will happen. I don't. I don't doubt there'll be some dispersion there, and we see Iran getting a a nuclear bomb, uh, possibly, probably, and we see other nations in greater animosity towards Israel. And, um, but Israel is very powerful. So in other words, we're not to lose heart because that possibility does move. Oh, absolutely. It, it's, there'll be some dispersion, but um, we'll look at this tomorrow, some other passages. Israel will not get pushed into the sea. Israel will not be annihilated. Israel will not cease to exist. Won't happen. Too many promises will not happen. Absolutely not. I uh, remember in the 1970s, there was a Christian contemporary singer. Uh, most of you will only know us from, from reading about it in, the mag- in, in books and the Internet, but his name was Larry Norman. And I went to a, conf- a, a concert. I admit to this openly. It's recorded on tape. I went to hear him uh, at Great Adventure, a theme park in New Jersey. And it was great. I remember a lot of things about the day. He was there for the whole day. He was handing out tracks all through the theme park. There was animals there. He said, I went to the, where the animals were. I was handing tracks out to the animals. And he said, they're just like people. They didn't take the tracks. Uh, but anyway, he said, in that day, it was all about the nuclear bomb, right? Everybody said, Russia's going to get the bomb. And there's an arms race. And he said this. He said, this world's not going anywhere. You know, they talked about too many... They were talking in that day of so many atomic bombs that we're going to be knocked off our axis and we're going to get pushed closer to the sun. We're all going to be burned to a crisp. The whole world's going to come to an end and it's not going to happen. He said, how do I know that? He says, because it says the Lord Jesus is coming back to this earth. There'll be an earth here. I don't know what it'll be like, but I know it will be here. Based upon the word of God, he's coming back here and there will be people here and there'll be an earth here that he comes back to. And so Israel will be here. Promises to Israel. They will be here. They, they may be dispersed, and I don't doubt that. Uh, there's a lot of pressure coming upon them. But other nations have uh, atomic bombs. I think Israel has 100. So um, uh, they have strong weaponry now. They put, they put 25 or 30% of their total economy into the military. They've got the best weapons. They have, I don't know how this works, don't even ask me, but they have guns, rifles, that shoot around corners. Now, how do you do that? Get a rifle that goes, I don't know how it happens. I don't know how they do it. They have the greatest technology uh, in weaponry of any nation in the world. Strongest army, one of the strongest armies of any nation in the world, certainly of their size. Airplanes, tanks, submarines, you name it. If they get attacked, they will attack and there'll be a lot of devastation. And I don't know if that will happen. But Israel will be dispersed. There'll be a regathering. And, um, and we might see some of that. And as you say, we shouldn't give heart, uh, lose heart to say that, you know, God's promises aren't coming to pass. Um, 
Well, I still have questions coming. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Israel may be, there may be a dispersion again. I mean, I, uh, that may be not recorded in, in, in Scripture. There may be another dispersion of some sense. Um, <clears throat> they are, we'll look at this tomorrow morning. I've got some other things to say about that. But um, I think God is working right now in a special way with Israel. She's fulfilling biblical prophecy. God is working with her. We're coming to a lot of events that are coming to a close. And, um, and so, but there can be a dispersion. And we'll have to see what will happen. But uh, God's hand is undoubtedly with Israel. And he is working with them. Though they're unbelieving, he is working with them. And more Jews are being saved at this time. I'll give a chart tomorrow than any other time in church history. Um, according to many Jewish ministries. Well, well as there was there one other question? We'll just, I think there's one more here. And we'll stop with this one. I would say so, yes. Just a comment. I read recently in the last couple of months that Israel has a thousand smart bombs that you list that delivered to them. So they caught, they, they've got stuff that we can't even talk about behind the scenes. And I have read that, that Israeli people at higher levels have said if Iran launches a missile against them, they're going to wipe out Iran. I can't see that happening in prophecy. That's disturbed some of what we believe. Yeah. Okay. Let's close in a word of prayer. God and Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for all those, Father, that have a, a love for the Word of God and a love for Israel and a love for the purposes of God and the hand of God working his sovereign ways and plans in history. And so, Father, we, we just observe and look and see uh, see you doing this. And so we, we give you thanks for that. And we just pray that we would have a love for Israel. We would pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And, uh, Father, we pray that we might be those who might defend the word of God for what it stands for and what it teaches. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.